listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 251. In this episode, we are talking with Alex Gordon, president of the UK's largest railway and transport workers union, about Britain's hot strike summer. But first, a word about our sponsor, you. If you appreciate the independent labor journalism that we've been producing with this podcast for nearly a decade and want to support our work, you can contribute to our small production team here at Descent Magazine by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And now for the news. Medieval Times is one of those pop cultural institutions that never gets old. For decades, the live-action family entertainment program has mixed Renaissance festival aesthetics with theme park-like theatrics. And for the cast members who do the stunts, ride the horses, and act out dramatic tales of gallantry and romance at every show, it is pretty hard work. So that's why the performers at the Medieval Times in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, including the stable hands, the stunt people, knights, squires, etc., voted 26 to 11 last week to join the American Guild of Variety Artists. The bargaining unit includes roughly 40 workers, according to the Huffington Post, which broke the story. The workers complain chiefly about low pay and high-risk labor conditions. As with many professional entertainers, it seems that the company expects its performers to run on passion, even if it means that they make less than a living wage. Currently, the pay for entry-level squires starts at about $14 an hour, which is just about New Jersey's minimum wage. As night performer Antonio Sanchez told the New York Times, quote, fun doesn't pay the bills, unquote. Monica Garza, who plays the queen, said, quote, a huge point of the union is just basic respect. People will always exploit you when it's something you love because they know you'll do it for nothing, unquote. Despite the enthusiasm the cast bring to each two-hour show, many occupational hazards abound in these swashbuckling performances. A typical medieval times show involves highly choreographed fight scenes with knights jousting and parading around on horseback amid crowds of screaming children and rowdy adults in paper crowns who might get a little physically aggressive as the evening wears on. Harassment from audience members has been an issue. And then there's the risk of falling off a horse or a horse freaking out when spooked by loud noises from the crowd. The company issued a statement saying that it planned to bargain in good faith, but in the lead up to the union vote, it tried mightily to thwart the organizing effort by retaining so-called union avoidance consultants that cost about $3,200 a day and subject employees to captive audience meetings. Huffington Post reported that, quote, a number of employees have spoken up during the anti-union meetings, challenging the assertions made by the company's consultant, according to the workers, unquote. But many Medieval Times performers may have gone into the union drive pretty confident with a good sense of what was at stake because they've been members of other entertainment industry unions, including Actors' Equity Association. A previous union vote in 2006 narrowly failed amid allegations that the company had violated labor laws to upend the union. But the newly formed union is in good company. The American Guild of Variety Artists also represents the Rockettes of Radio City Music Hall fame and the performers at Disneyland. As with several of the new upstart unions that we've seen crop up at well-known brands, workers with previous labor movement experience have played a role in generating momentum for the organizing drive. Public support may also have helped, as Governor Phil Murphy voiced his support for the union as well. And maybe Medieval Times fans will be extra appreciative of the performers now, knowing that behind the scenes the cast and crew really did prevail in a real-life epic battle between good and evil. Yoga instructors have to give off an air of calm and health at all times, even when their own life circumstances are anything but calming and healthy. 
Lately, yoga instructors in the U.S. and Britain have been organizing, tired of precarious conditions, low pay, and being told to suck it up because they love the job. Recently, yoga instructors in Britain, organizing with the Independent Workers of Great Britain, IWGB Union, launched a campaign of organizing around the sexual harassment they face at work. I spoke with one of the union leaders. My name is Laura Hancock, she, her, and I'm the founding chair of the Yoga Teachers Union in the UK. Excellent. So tell us how things are going with the Yoga Teachers Union. Um, How has it grown since you launched? Uh, It's quite a very interesting question because when we launched, it was in the throes of um, lockdown. And actually, we had quite a big burst at the very, very beginning. Um, And then we hit a bit of a, a block because I think lockdown persevered for so long. And we were kind of met with loads of unforeseen challenges. So we kind of ended up stalling a little bit and just kind of leveling out for a while. But we've been working really, really, really hard, like kind of more underground, trying to like work out what our worker status is, like how to organize all of these things, like a bunch of yoga teachers coming together to collectivize. It was it was a lot more difficult than I think we thought it would be because we're not used to that, right? We're not used to working collectively in this way or remotely in the middle of a pandemic, all that stuff. So it's been quite a lot of teething problems and trying to work out how best to do this. But over the last, like, I would say the last six months or so, it's been really kind of picking up once again. And a lot of that focus has been on regional. So Oxford, Oxford has a group of teachers. We're piloting regional organizing, and that's been incredibly active, engaged, and consistent. And then um, other regions are starting to form now as well. So Brighton, they're just picking up now their numbers, and they're like looking at how they're going to organize. And I was speaking to the Norwich teachers yesterday, the Glasgow teachers. So we're hoping that the blueprint of the Oxford model will help to kind of facilitate and support other regions to do the same. So kind of quite a lot of emphasis on community organizing. Workplace is a part of that, obviously, but because we work in such different ways and we work across so many multiple different venues and in different ways, that kind of community focus seems to be what's really holding us. And then obviously this campaign, this campaign has really galvanized a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of um, work from lots of people across across the branch as well. Yeah. So sexual harassment is obviously a huge issue for yoga teachers, a feminized workforce, one that involves the body. Can you tell us some of what you've been hearing from members since forming the union on this issue? It's been pretty harrowing, truth be told. Like, I mean, we knew we knew sex harassment was an issue. Like any any long term practitioner of yoga will be aware of, you know, lots of the kind of um, issues that are arising in different lineages, different schools, documentaries on Netflix about Bikram and all those types of things. So we're aware that this issue is is here. But it's the first time we've really looked at it through the lens of the worker, like from the teacher's perspective. And it, you know, it was the first thing that came to us. Like we we originally organized around pay and precarity. That was what we were first, you know, talking about. And that's what seemed to be where the energy was. But as soon as we formalized, it was actually sex harassment and sexual abuse that was coming up over and over and over again. And my role, I was kind of, I was chair at the time. And, you know, I'd been kind of, you know, central in kind of that organizing, coordinating with new members. So I kind of became that main point of contact and the main caseworker on these things as well. And just just I took 39 disclosures um, varying from, you know, stalking, coercion, rape um, to even worse. It's been it's been incredibly harrowing and things that, you know, we wouldn't expect to, to see in the yoga world, but incredibly prevalent. Um, and patterns, we're seeing patterns 
patterns in different schools, patterns in different venues. Um, and I think it's just, you know, that direct correlation with our precarity. Um, the fact that we don't have much power, we are completely reliant on, you know, very informal relationships with venues and schools and in the community. People are struggling right now financially, desperately trying to get rent paid, uh, trying to pay back like loans that we were given through lockdown. And, you know, we're just not in a position where we can really challenge. So, yeah, so we're seeing patterns of coercion, patterns of you know, there's there's a high level of complicitness in the industry. Um, and these are conversations we've had amongst us and with various other, you know, teachers that have been organizing around these issues for a long time. It doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be anyone in the industry that's willing to kind of take ownership of this or or take responsibility. Like, you know, this has to be addressed and how do we do it? So I think as a union, it surprised us and I think it surprised everyone else around us as well that this became the main issue, particularly because when you look statistically, I think it's only 1% report sexual harassment to the union reps. And for us, it's been it's been over 80% of our casework has been around sexual abuse and sexual harassment. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the things is that unions have a history of maybe not taking this as seriously as they should have. And this is why, you know, in some industries, especially male dominated industries, it can be a real challenge. And we've talked about this on the show before when the person harassing you is also in the union. Um, yeah. So that's uh, one of those reasons that I think those numbers end up being low in some other places. But yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the campaign that you guys are forming around sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, so really interesting, just just referring back to what you said there as well about people not speaking up. I think maybe one of the differences around this is that it is completely survivor-led. So, you know, when we first formed the union, uh, we we created an anti-sexual harassment work group, which was the first group to form, and it's been consistently the most engaged and the most active because of, you know, the nature of the issues and the cases that we're facing. Um, and I think that's made a difference because obviously, you know, people are working, you know, rooted in their personal experiences as well. And, you know, that really, really strong, deep belief in what needs to change. And I think everyone's kind of at the end of their limits of what we can tolerate. So I think there's been there's been a passion and a drive there that has been able to push through the challenges of the pandemic that has you know seen other movements suffer and other kind of aspects of the union work fall down. Um, so I think that's been really powerful that it has been survivor led. It's a difficult campaign. It's really, really hard work. It's very emotionally draining. Um, there's lots of, you know, being re-traumatized. There's lots of vicarious trauma going on. So like trying to create a way of organizing that felt like it was really holding all of us in that and like being able to take care of ourselves in that process but also meet the demands that were coming our way. And there was a real sense of urgency as well. I mean, the numbers where I live have been extraordinarily high. And so we have felt this really strong sense of urgency to get this through. But, you know, we've got like, you know, legalities. Um, our worker status is, you know, kind of unknown at the moment. We're, we're in that gig economy realm. And so we don't have the same protections that an employee would have. Uh, we don't have the same, you know, structures that we can lean into and, and, what I think the most prevalent and perhaps like the saddest part of this was just this repetitive, recurring, desperate thing that was coming across from so many people is that we've got nowhere to turn. Like just over and over again, whatever people had gone to, whether they'd gone to, you know, governing bodies or awarding bodies or gone to venue owners or even the police, you know, on occasions where people felt safe enough to do that, it hasn't been handled well. People have been dismissed and deflected and said, you know, it's not their remit, go somewhere else. And and 
people are left, well, what do we do with this? So the union's been holding it. And if we drop it, where does it go? So there's been a real sense of like, you know, we we have to drive this forward and we have to change the industry, not just for yoga teachers. I think it's for all gig economy workers. Like we know how prevalent this is in the gig economy. Somebody has to hold this. Yeah. I think it's really important to recognize that there's something about feminized workforces unionizing and how critically important this is at the moment. I was reading some statistics about the gig economy recently about how the feminized workforce is actually increasing in the gig economy more than it ever has before. And I think it's an area that that hasn't been organized much. And um, I think this is the time for us. So I feel really, really excited and you know happy to chat to anyone that's wanting to organize in this area and finding ways that we can all support each other and like create a new way of organizing that kind of meets our needs and, and does center the issues that we face. So what are the demands for this campaign? The demands we have, so um, they're clear and visible sexual harassment policies in every venue. We also want awarding bodies to make consent and sexual harassment training mandatory. And then we also want governing bodies and membership organizations to implement clear reporting mechanisms. Right. And so what are the the next steps sort of going forward? Like how is this taking shape and and what are some actions that, that folks are taking? Yeah, so at the moment, it's been really exciting. So the first week has been a lot about education. So sharing information around the Equalities Act, Equality Act, sorry, what sexual harassment means as per the Equality Act, what common law, duty of care we have, all of those types of things are kind of really kind of laying the foundations of of what structures do exist and what legalities do protect us and support us. Um, And now we're kind of moving into the stage of, you know, starting to approach venues. So the calls to actions we're going to have are, you know, for people to contact their local venues, find out if they have sexual harassment policies or not. And if they don't, you know, talk to them. And if they do, how can they be improved? And it's, it's proving a really helpful resource for people to start having these conversations within the workplaces. So in Oxford, uh, three of the venues here have already, you know, called meetings to look at, you know, reassessing their sexual harassment policies as a direct um, a direct result of the campaign. The Brighton teachers have contacted over a dozen venues to ask them to put sexual harassment policies in place. And we're hoping that will start to spread. So more teachers across the country will do the same um, with the governing body. So we have had some communication with British Rule of Yoga. Um, I heard that we got a response this morning, but I don't know what that is yet. Um, we've also had some people reach out from other arenas, so not necessarily the yoga industry, that are wanting to talk to us about what parameters could be put in place what mechanisms can we put in place to, to help support us with this, which has been really exciting. So see what they say. Um, yeah. And then our rewarding bodies, we just want, you know, teachers and people in our communities to start these conversations, talk to venues, talk to rewarding bodies and ask these questions. And we'll have like downloadable letters and, and emails on our website that people can use um, and just see, yeah, it's the first time we've really collectivized. It's the first time we've actually called yoga teachers to action. And already we're seeing stuff happening on the ground, which is really exciting. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about how it's felt to be organizing around this. I mean, I talked earlier about how challenging it was on lots of levels, particularly around the kind of emotional labor and vicarious trauma and things like that. But it's amazing though. Like it, um, I've been supporting a lot of survivors on the ground here, going through the kind of processes and trying to like navigate this extremely complex and difficult terrain and the thing that keeps coming up is just it doesn't matter how like how challenging and how difficult it is the fact that we're doing this together it just it makes such a difference like this feeling of strength empowerment 
Um, there's even kind of joy sometimes because, you know, so many people come to us and they feel completely hopeless, hopeless and helpless. Those are the things that come up. They've got nowhere left to turn. They don't know what to do. And by organizing and galvanizing on the ground here, we've created this incredibly strong network of mutual support, mutual care. And like, and it's a force to be reckoned with because, you know, where an individual, there are so many hurdles in the way. I, I am absolutely astounded by the level of hurdles people have to come across through the reporting process, through getting your voice heard, um, not just with the systems, but, you know, libel risk and all of these things that you don't really consider unless you're going through it. And knowing that every one of those hurdles, people would have stopped. But because we're doing it as a group and like we keep challenging and we keep persisting and we keep encouraging, we know that we're making headway. We know that we're moving through this in a way that we couldn't have done as individuals. So that in itself feels absolutely incredible. And yeah, I just I just hope that like, you know, more people can kind of see the power of that and and feel the strength of that. and, and, And maybe it will help other people to kind of do the same. That was Laura Hancock of the Yoga Teachers Union. We all knew Uber was a shady corporation, but the Uber Files expose that's just been published in several news outlets earlier this month sheds light on how extensively Uber worked to influence politicians around the world to bend laws and dismantle regulations that got in the way of the company's breakneck expansion. According to an analysis of more than 124,000 leaked documents by The Guardian, Uber dealt with public opposition to its rideshare business model by, quote, trying to shore up support by discreetly courting prime ministers, presidents, billionaires, oligarchs, and media barons, unquote. Uber's vast influence machine tried to win the support of politicians like President Joe Biden, as well as French President Emmanuel Macron, at a time when traditional cabbies were revolting in the streets across Europe, condemning the company for undermining their livelihoods. As we have reported before, the rideshare business model depends on having drivers essentially work for the rideshare app while simultaneously exploiting loopholes in labor law that enable the corporation to profit off the driver's services without formally employing them. That in turn allows companies like Uber to get a competitive edge in the for-hire vehicle market by skirting various labor protections like minimum wage standards, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, etc. So Uber has been lobbying governments around the world to thwart efforts to regulate the rideshare industry, very much in the same way that it is successfully done with federal and local governments here in the U.S. I talked to Matthew Cole, a postdoctoral researcher at Fair Work, a project of the Oxford Internet Institute, about what the Uber files tell us about Uber's labor practices and political strategy. What was, what was the most, I guess, interesting in the Uber files to me was how much effort they spent to influence public officials, uh, which I don't think is a, anything new. I mean, this is a, a, this is a sort of standard tactic of corporate America and standard tactic of, I think, global corporations in any given geopolitical context. Um, but one of the things I thought that was quite revealing about the state of academia and how academic research is used by corporations, but particularly uh, platform, digital labor platforms like Uber, is the um, the fact that I think Uber paid Alan Kruger to author a major NB, uh, National uh, Bureau of Economic Research paper that was entirely in support of Uber. And he, you know, he earned $100,000 for this. There was also revelations that Uber was entirely aware of all of its illegal practices because they have this sort of pyramid of shit, quote unquote, um, where 
they they just sort of accepted that what they were doing they knew what they were doing was illegal or um or at least at the very edges of the law but they were trying to move faster than the regulatory context you know it's very much part of this California ideology of the move fast and break things, this sort of libertarian capitalist fantasy, I think. It seems like the Uber Files coverage that I've read really focuses on sort of the issue of political access. Um, but I guess it, you know, it does speak to these broader issues where, you know, it's not just about certain politicians, you know, being bankrolled or being lobbied by by shady corporations. It's it's more systemic than that, right? Like in, in terms of what they're actually trying to change in the entire sort of political uh structure that they're working yeah yeah i think that 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 highlights a really important thing that i I guess the the way that the story has been pitched is very much in this like moral kind of uh you know uber's corrupting our institutions and look at how evil this tech giant really is and kind of it, it has a little bit of a conspiratorial um flavor to it but i think yeah the, the point that you just made and and i was sort of gesturing towards before is that this is a window into how global capitalism actually functions this is not the exception but the rule and i think you know maybe maybe uber overstepped it a little bit and was a bit too brash but I think it just points to a lot of the existing problems with a unregulated free market capital. It presents the illusion of freedom when instead what we have is a world that's decided for us by those with the most uh, networked effects, the most users, the most uh, control over data and the monopolies on our public infrastructure. That was Matthew Cole, postdoctoral researcher at Fair Work. It's cooled off a little here in London, but this week saw record-shattering temperatures across Europe and the U.S., and a reminder that this is only going to get worse as our governments continue to collectively fiddle while the world burns. Luckily, there's one thing that they care about even less than hitting decarbonization targets, and that's labor rights. The climate catastrophe is here already. It's not some future issue, and it is taking its toll. And as so many have noted, those effects are not equally distributed. Politico Europe's Zia Visi and Carl Matheson write, quote, Europe's record-smashing heat wave has exposed a divide between workers who can escape the heat and those who can't. From Portugal to Belgium and into Central Europe, those unable to decamp to air-conditioned offices sweltered in buses and bakeries, on fields and construction sites as a brutal heat wave gripped the continent. In Spain, the death of a 60-year-old street cleaner put a tragic spotlight on the risk faced by key workers. José Antonio González died in hospital Saturday after collapsing from heat stroke on the Madrid pavement he'd been sweeping. Europe's business-as-usual approach to working in high temperatures underscores just how underprepared countries are for heat waves and highlights an emerging labor divide. I have seen reports about heat that say it's an invisible risk, but it's only invisible for people that are sitting in air-conditioned rooms, said Claudia Naraki, a Spanish sociologist and author of a recent European Trade Union Institute paper on heat-related work risks. End quote. They also note that the International Labor Organization estimates that by 2030, around 2% of work hours worldwide will be lost because it's too hot to work or workers will need to slow down. 
Here in Britain, Polly Smythe, labor correspondent at Novara Media, wrote, quote, At the restaurant chain where Tina worked a seven-hour shift in Monday's 38-degree heat, there was no air conditioning. It was broken for the last heat wave, and the problem with it could easily be fixed, she explains. Head office only offered help when the guests started complaining. If it's too hot for guests to be sitting down, can you imagine how hot it is as a server rushing around? The chain purchased fans, but, Tina adds, business needs always overtake the few rights workers have. The new fans were positioned so that they kept customers rather than staff cool. While the tarmac on Luton Airport's runway melted during the Met Office's Level 4 red weather alert, work for many carried on as normal. As climate change causes extreme weather events to become more intense, last longer, and occur more frequently, simply doing your job can expose you to dangerous levels of heat, putting you at risk of dehydration, heat stroke, and death. End quote. She also points out that the situation is harder for gig workers, who don't have anyone to report hazardous conditions to, as I discussed during last episode's ARG from Eve Livingston. And she writes, quote, gig work platforms have taken to framing the decision to work as an independent choice that they facilitate, end quote. Bad weather, heat or rain or cold, can make people more likely to order in off the apps, spiking demand at exactly the times when work is most dangerous and workers would rather not. Unions are demanding that governments institute protections from extreme heat. The European Trade Union Confederation is calling for the EU to declare heat an occupational safety hazard, placing more responsibility on employers to protect workers and to set legal maximum working temperatures. British trade union GMB is calling for a limit of 25 degrees Celsius, and the British Trades Union Congress is calling for a maximum indoor temperature of 30 degrees Celsius or 27 degrees for strenuous jobs. And for our American listeners, 27 degrees Celsius is about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Polly notes that in China and the UAE, outdoor work is regulated through partial bans during the hottest hours of the day and outright bans beyond certain temperatures. Closer to home, Spanish guidelines restrict indoor work in temperatures above 27 degrees Celsius or 25 degrees Celsius for work involving physical activity. But even those guidelines, of course, require enforcement. Some unions have been able to negotiate limited working conditions, air conditioners, or fans. There just really isn't much central air over here. And we're going to have to see much more of this in the future, as well as direct action when conditions are untenable. Perhaps some of the unions that have dragged their feet about climate change will start to realize that it is indeed a labor issue right here, right now. There's been a lot of talk about a hot strike summer in Britain, and that's mainly because of the excitement around the rail workers' strike, begun in June by the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers. More strikes are planned, with other rail worker unions joining the RMT on the picket lines. I sat down with Alex Gordon, the president of the RMT, the largest union of railway and transport workers covering metro workers, underground workers, mainline rail workers, and seafarers. As the next strikes loom, beginning July 27th, we talked about the state of the unions, the prospects for a revival of class consciousness, the privatization and financialization of rail travel, looming climate breakdown and transport workers' role in fighting it, and so much more. We met up after a long day of meetings in central London, and since the office had to close, we wound up outside chatting over wine because nothing is too good for the working class. That does mean, though, that we have some background noise in the recording. I encourage you to bear with us. It's a really great conversation, and you can just pretend that you joined us for a glass of rosé. It is worth it to hear what's going on and how workers can win despite all of the political chaos in Britain and the world. 
We began by discussing the status of negotiations with the employer's organization, which represents the collection of private and semi-private companies that manage Britain's rail system. We're in negotiations with a kind of employer's federation that's been put together for the purposes really of reorganizing Great British Railways, as the Conservative Party, Conservative (laughs) government in Britain has uh, decided to call it. Um, So it's uh, a group of employers organized organizations, mainly private companies, but some that are taxpayer funded and effectively state owned. And we've been in negotiations for several months now. The underlying issues in this dispute are that our members, railway workers, uh, are now in the third year of a pay freeze. And retail price index inflation in the UK uh, in the month of June uh, was 11.7%. So in 12 months of June, prices rose by around 11.7%. So there really is a cost of living crisis taking place in Britain. And workers are being squeezed. And railway workers have worked throughout the pandemic doing essential work, delivering emergency workers to their jobs, to hospitals and uh, all the rest of it and they are not prepared to take it anymore. But sitting alongside the cost of living crisis is an agenda that's being pushed very hard by the employers' groups at the behest of the government and the Department of Transport, headed by a man called Grant Shapps for the moment. Um, (laughs) This week. This week. And that agenda is really to uh, wipe out all uh, contractual bargained uh, employment conditions in the rail industry and to replace railway workers with uh, casualised labour. So for us this is an existential fight. We are a union that's been around for 150 years. We were formed out of the railway workers in the 19th century who were dealing with these behemoths, these enormous powerful railway companies. So, you know, we came from this whole history of being grassroots organisations of workers struggling with these very powerful companies. Over 150 years, we've managed to win a number of conditions that they value and they want to defend. And we're being told that uh, these are dinosaur conditions and they've got to go in the name of progress. So we disagree, naturally, and uh, we're putting up a fight. The workers on the strike are employed in a variety of positions on the trains and in stations, doing a variety of work that was considered essential during the pandemic and continues to be essential now. I asked Alex to tell me more about their work and about the cuts that the operators are trying to make. The first that was brought into direct dispute were workers employed by London Underground. So we have about 10,000 union members in my union employed by London Underground doing all variety of jobs from the people you see in the stations, uh, customer service staff, through to the train drivers, the train operators, as uh, London Underground call them, fixing the trains, cleaning the trains. So all of those people have been involved in a strike which is not overpay because they're actually in receipt of a quite good pay award this year, but is over the fact that the London Underground is being squeezed by the government and the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who is putatively in charge of London Underground, has been told he has to save money, uh, so he's cutting jobs. And so there's a threat to jobs, 
uh, threat to our members' jobs, yeah. and what is also being threatened is their their pension scheme. So they've been in dispute now for several months, and they've taken action on a number of days. But what's changed in the last two months is that the national railway workers have come alongside them. So we have around about twenty thousand workers employed by a company called Network Rail, crucially the people who maintain the infrastructure of the railway. They've been uh, threatened with mass job losses. Around about fifteen、uh, hundred jobs are due to go、uh, under the company's proposals,、uh, and there's also a number of threats to their、uh, terms and conditions of employment. They've been brought into the dispute alongside them,、uh, workers, railway workers working for fifteen different、uh, train operating companies. That is to say, the People you'll actually see working on the station there, the station staff, the guards of the trains, the drivers of the trains—all of those people have been brought into dispute. So, in all, we've had around about fifty-five thousand railway workers taking strike action、uh, in the past couple of weeks, and that's the largest number、uh, of workers that have been on strike together at one time in a common dispute in the railway industry in Britain since 1989. The strikes in June touched off a wave of excitement among working people. Young people who became politicized in the post-2008 wave, but have been disconnected from organized labor, as well as workers across the economy who understood that the rail workers were fighting for the broader working class. From the U.S., I watched as solidarity calls went out and videos were circulated of RMT leaders in the press, eloquently making the case for the value of strikes, even if they did inconvenience ordinary people. It began to seem like some sort of turning point. We do carry out a lot of strike activity、uh, in. In my union, but we've never seen picket lines so well supported、uh, as we saw last month, twenty first, twenty third, twenty fifth of June. We saw picket lines forming in places where、um, probably have, probably haven't seen them since the nineteen twenty six general strike.、Yeah. I mean, tiny little signal boxes up in the Highlands of Scotland, towns in the southeast of England where we don't even have a, a railway union branch. Workers would turn up at railway stations almost spontaneously to picket them out. You would go to、uh, industrial picket lines out on the edge of some dirty road near a motorway, and you'd find members of the public turning up with bags of donuts and, you know, drinks for for people who'd been standing there since five o'clock in the morning on a picket line. When you went to some of the bigger stations, London Bridge Station in South London,、uh, they had pickets there. I mean, forty or fifty people on the picket line, almost all young people. A lot of them young workers, railway workers who'd never been to a union branch meeting before, but were celebrating partly because it was very good weather in London, <laughs> and partly because they were excited to be there.、Yeah. They came along. They brought sound, their sound systems. They were dancing. They were getting huge support. From bus drivers passing in the street, from tourists, from office workers,、yeah. and they were just, I guess, celebrating being the centre of attention because all eyes were on them. The media, the British, UK media, like its counterpart in the United States, is fanatically right-wing and anti-working、yeah. class, and the media had taken a, a strategy towards our strike of attempting to demonise the union. Firstly, by、um, trying to humiliate, uh, taunt uh, union officials in interviews, that came badly unstuck. <laughs> because, 
but the the impact of that on our members is really important. It, it uh, confirmed to them, I suppose, um, their their pride in being a member of a trade union. But it also um, was very important, more generally, in that workers who had nothing to do with our union or nothing to do with the railway industry identified so strongly with what they were doing. Yeah. So by the by the end of that week uh, of strikes. Uh, we had a, a sort of impromptu mass rally uh, just outside King's Cross Station, yeah. close to where we are, where several thousand people turned up at uh, just a few hours' notice. And um, it was really, really remarkable. You could see that something had shifted politically in Britain during that week. It's our view, really, that there is now a change in consciousness uh, in British society and in the British yeah. working class or the working class in Britain. There is definitely a, a desire for resistance to the wage suppression which is going on in British society. Uh, there is a desire for a fight back. And you can see other trade unions with mass membership are now balloting their members mm -hmm. in strike action, yeah. getting big yes votes to strike action. That's, that probably would have happened without the RMT strike, but the RMT strike, without doubt, gave confidence and strength to the working class fight. As I talked about on the last episode of Belabored, other train workers have also taken successful strike votes. The Transport Salaried Staffs Association, TSSA, voted to strike at network rail and rail operators. The Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, or ASLEF, voted to strike at several rail operators. And members of Unite and RMT, employed by U.S.-owned rail maintenance firm Webtech, are planning to strike. After this conversation took place, Royal Mail workers with the CWU in perhaps the biggest strike vote of the summer voted 97% to strike the Postal Service. Members of the University and College Union have overwhelmingly voted to strike, and Uber drivers with the ADCU struck this week. As Alex pointed out, this has gone beyond a sectoral dispute. This has now broadened out into a class fight. The important thing for for us, I think, is to, first of all, understand that we've managed to see off the attempt to isolate and demonise one union, which was very much the Tory, the Conservative Party's strategy, based on what they managed to do in 40 years ago, 1984-85, with the miners, um, to isolate one group of workers from the rest of the organised working class, and then to destroy their union right. and we were determined we are determined that that won't happen to us yeah so the way to avoid that happening is to be part of a broad movement and we're glad to see that postal workers are now balloting for strike action telecoms workers are voting for, have voted for strike action uh, civil servants are due to be balloted for strike action very shortly yeah. teachers uh, are preparing a ballot for strike action this is a, a much broader campaign a much broader movement than was the case in the 1980s at this point in the conversation, I was reminded of an article by Matt Stoller during the 2011 Wisconsin uprising. He wrote, quote, Perversely, people may be so beaten down that they only want to side with institutions that are visibly and aggressively advocating for them. This might lead them to recognize that middle-class interests are aligned with those of labor, which was the widespread view in the first generation after World War II. However, that also means that the de facto business unionism of the 1970s onward isn't appealing. People might only like unions when they see strikes. Otherwise, all they hear about is backroom negotiations. 
perhaps effectively striking is actually the way to force people to ask questions about what kind of country they want to live in. I haven't seen this much labor coverage since, well, ever in my lifetime. There seems to be multiple feedback loops at work, political, global, and economic, end quote. It makes it so much harder to demonize the union when people see what it's fighting for and when they can feel those same effects in their own pockets. And with the RMT, those picket lines all over the country made the strike widely visible. It wasn't just isolated in one place. It was everywhere. It was in your neighborhood. It was the train you take every day. The train driver you wave to, the ticket agent who helps you. Things have been bad for so long that it's magnetic, exciting to see people fighting back. We've had some successes over here. I mean, we've been on the, on the wrong end of neoliberalism since uh, the early 1980s in Britain as well. But we've managed to maintain, at least in some sectors, a strong organisation, a strong trade union organisation, and a pretty strong class consciousness, tradition of class consciousness. And we've managed to reproduce that with new generations of workers coming into uh, industries that have been privatised. And we've still managed to win them to an understanding of the need for public ownership, the need for um, socialism, the need for struggle, the need need to be a member of a trade union. Britain's trade union laws are famously some of the most restrictive in the world, and successive governments have only been trying to make them worse. I asked Alex to explain the conditions under which his union and others have been pulling off these impressive strike votes. Essentially from the early 1980s, the Thatcher counter-revolution set out to systematically uh, take out the trade unions. So we've had about 15 major reforms, quote-unquote, of the Trade Union and Labour Consolidation Act. Uh, Those reforms have each time made it more difficult for trade unions to take strike action, have made it more expensive uh, in terms of the fines that they get if they uh, breach the law, uh, and have essentially made it more and more difficult for trade unions to be sovereign bodies controlled by their own members. Often, uh, many of these so-called reforms uh, have brought in government officials to oversee the trade unions. And what we find now is that, for example, when you're going into an industrial dispute situation, if if you want to take strike action, you have to carry out a fully postal ballot. Uh, So that's an individual vote by post to the home, set, uh, an envelope sent to the home address of the of the trade union member, which they then have to open, pull out their voting paper, mark yes in the uh, appropriate box, put the voting paper back into another envelope, put it into a post box, and send it off. Now, in in an era when Britain's Got Talent or uh, you know, <laughs> TV entertainment shows regularly uh, yeah. have uh, tens of thousands of viewers voting by text, by uh, internet. Uh, it's, it's a ludicrous system, and it's actually designed to suppress voting. After this interview was conducted, the Tories carried out their threat to make trade union law even worse. The business and energy minister tweeted, Today we changed the law to allow businesses impacted by strike action to hire skilled temporary workers to mitigate disruption. This was a criminal offense. Now it's an option for business. Pretty telling, honestly. We also spoke about the way the trade union laws are related to American practices of voter suppression. We've used the example of what goes on in the United States with the immense amount of money that's invested in voter suppression, uh, particularly in the South, right? Mm -hmm. And 
a similar thing goes on in union elections and, and union industrial disputes in Britain. There is this deliberate political strategy of voter suppression. If you carry out a fully postal ballot on most subjects, we know that you get about a 25% return of ballot. Uh, in order to get above that level, you have to work very, very hard. You have to speak to your members. You have to go to their homes. You have to phone them up. You have to say, have you had your ballot paper? Have you voted? Don't forget to vote. You have to really, really work at it. In order to have a valid strike ballot in this country, you have to have a 50% return of ballot paper. So we have to force that 25% uh, residual default level return up over the 50% level. We also have to ensure that 40% of all those who vote, vote yes in the strike balance. So there's this big onus now on the unions to communicate clearly, strategically and quickly and flexibly with their members during these strike balance. What the RMT has done in the last couple of months is really shown the trade union movement in Britain how that can be done. Uh, many unions have failed to deliver strike mandates because although their members may have voted nine to one for strike action, only 30% of their members bothered to vote. Right. And this has been a big, big problem for years, for the last 10 years, since the current anti-union laws came in. And so what we've managed to prove now is that we have the technology, we have the organisational levels, and we have the, the, the skilled activists to be able to bust through those threshold levels. And we're doing it time and time again. So that's really important. It's a lesson that we're teaching to the rest of the movement as well. In the rail industry in particular, one of the reasons we're being attacked now is that we've hung on to and improved uh, rates of pay and conditions for workers during the privatisation era. It's, it's something that, frankly, baffles the employers sometimes. They can't understand how it could be that we've still managed to hold on to a really good retirement pension scheme. Uh, you know, some of their comments about it uh, express a sense of astonishment. They refer to our pension scheme as being like a, a Frankenstein scheme, a, 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 something that's undead and should be dead, but it's still stumbling on years after these pensions have been taken away from most occupational groups in this country. So we've still managed to hold on to quite a lot. British Rail has been privatized for decades, broken up into a series of private operators, and speaking as someone who got stuck in Durham a couple weeks ago because of train cancellations unrelated to the strike, it's a mess, an actual Frankenstein monster of companies and investors and owners and leases, and so I asked Alex to explain. So the privatization of British Rail in 1985, around that period, was one of the one of the biggest robberies of public money that went on during the neoliberal era. The assets were sold off very cheaply. Uh, the structures that were put in place were guaranteed to enable profiteering by shareholders and led very quickly to the collapse of the industry. So we saw in the late 90s, four or five years after privatisation, this huge escalation in rail crashes, serious accidents with mass casualties. And that essentially led to the then Labour government of uh, Tony Blair attempting to establish a kind of state-managed form of privatisation in the worst of all possible worlds. 
Meanwhile, the most of the operation of railway services, the passenger trains, continue to be run by private companies on very short contracts where they sort to sweat the assets and make as much money as possible uh, in a short period of time. And that generally came down to getting rid of staff because most of the costs are fixed costs. So the only really major variable cost is staff. Right. So there was this huge push towards de-staffing railway stations, trains. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work that our unit's been doing in the last 20 years has really been resisting attempts to wipe out jobs in the rail industry yeah. and to keep, the, uh, keep our members in skilled, well-paid employment. Now, where we've got to today is that after 25 years of this privatisation debacle, even the Conservative government had to admit that it doesn't work. It's become phenomenally expensive and effectively the current government until this week led by <laughs> we'll Boris get into Johnson, that don't worry I have questions about that <laughs> uh, decided to replace a lot of these private companies with what were effectively government state mandated contracts which are then mm-hmm. let out to uh, private operators for short periods of time we've now got a, a railway system which is being run for the benefit of very large banks and yeah. a lot of private transport corporations who bought into this uh, sort of public-private mess which they've uh, which the Tories have created. And it's not just that the train system is privatized, though that would be enough. It's the way the whole system is also financialized, that the companies that run the trains don't own them but lease them from somebody else, that banks are extracting money from everywhere. The whole system just gets more bonkers the more you look at it, all in the name of profit. What we have here is this um, absolutely, it's, it's a complete apogee of neoliberal dogma. And it's absolutely insane. It's incredibly wasteful. It doesn't work. And it's, it's led to the loss and siphoning out of hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds of public money into the banks and shareholders' pockets, which is actually what it's all about anyway. Providing train services is only really a derivative business for people whose main concern is to profiteer out of public services, whether they run fewer trains, whether they run more trains, whether they run better trains, their profits are absolutely guaranteed. So there's no incentive whatsoever for them to provide better services, provide more seating, better waiting rooms. The lack of workers to do any sort of customer service struck me that previous weekend when I was trying to get to Durham for the Miners Gala. On the way up there, the train line app through which I bought my tickets notified me that my train had been cancelled, and there was no clear information about whether my ticket would still be good for the next train. The lack of workers in the packed King's Cross station meant that I ended up buying another ticket, unsure if I'd get a refund on the app. There was no one to ask for help without waiting in a line so long I'd surely have missed the next two trains. Commuters are left battling with an app. And that, Alex said, is precisely what the employers want to do more of. Replace human workers with a technology that leaves you no way to talk to a human. One of their proposals at the moment in their discussions with the with our union is they're proposing to close every single ticket office in every single railway station across Britain and replace them with a member of staff walking around with an iPad or a, a smartphone. Now... They want to get rid of knowledgeable staff who can tell you what the cheapest and most appropriate ticket to buy for your journey is. Right, or whether I needed to buy another one at all. Indeed. (laughs) And 
who profits. The people who profit are the same people who are proposing to get rid of their ticket office stuff. So you can kind of see how, how it works for them. Of course, we had to get to the questions everyone's waiting for. What does all this have to do with the conservative government that's currently in meltdown mode, scrambling to choose a new leader after Boris Johnson was ousted? While both parties are responsible for the privatization and dismantling of British Rail, the current government has a mysterious role in the current negotiations, and it is a political role with a goal of crushing unions. We believe that they're behind the negotiations and they're behind the intransigence of the employers in the negotiations. Normally speaking, with railway employers, although we have fairly brutal uh, disputes and full and frank exchange of views when it comes to negotiations, we understand what they need to do, they understand what we want, and we generally manage to find a negotiated solution Mm -hmm. in disputes. What's different in the summer of 2022 is that the Department of Transport, um, the government department responsible for the railways in Britain, has deliberately uh, decided to block any negotiated agreement between the unions and the railway employers at the same time as they deny that they have any role in influencing the employers in the negotiations. But we know because we've been sat in the room with employers' representatives that they have to go out and phone Whitehall, they have to go out and phone the Department for Transport every time uh, they make a decision about anything in the negotiation. It's quite clear that this is a politically motivated dispute. It's been put together by a Conservative government that is quite fractured. It's a very uh, vulnerable government in many ways. And this dispute has been put together as part of a political strategy to take on a fight with a smallish union, the Railway Workers' Union, uh, to smash the Railway Workers' Union, uh, to triumphantly proclaim that they're the heirs of Margaret Thatcher who smashed the miners, and to then proceed to win the next general election on the back of this uh, Pyrrhic victory. Now, it hasn't gone according to plan, uh, and it won't, but uh, that's why these negotiations are so difficult. It might not surprise you to hear that the RMT is not all that invested in the current Tory leadership contest. It makes no difference. We're pursuing an industrial dispute, not a political dispute. The dispute was created by the government, in our view, uh, but it's a real dispute over our members' pay terms and conditions. And we're not deflected from that by the circus going on over in the Tory party at the moment. It's, It's irrelevant to us which of those monsters ends up as leader of their party Um, they they really are I mean even by even by the standards of the British Conservative Party the runners and riders in this election are uh, a bunch of extreme right sort of Ayn Rand fans they're trying to appeal to the selectorate before they even go to their own party members the electorate selectorate are this group of backbench Tory MPs who were selected in the last 10-15 years during the period of austerity. They are absolute believers in uh, all of the economic fallacies of neoliberalism. I I think you can see how sort of structurally neoliberalism is kind of shuddering to its end in the British Conservative Party internal elections in 2022 Mm -hmm. because all of the uh, solutions they claim they're in favour of don't work 
So at a time when there's massive stagnation, there's economic stagnation, there's a lack of growth, there's a lack of investment uh, in the British economy. The only source from which that growth and investment is going to come and economic growth could come from would be state investment, would be public investment, because the private sector won't invest because there's no profit in it. So the needs, the real needs of the capitalist system are not being expressed by these advocates of neoliberalism. It's almost as though you know, the, the, the theory that capitalism has stood by for the last 40 years has ceased to be of use in the sometime after the pandemic or maybe just sometime after 2010 really yeah after the global mm -hmm. financial crisis you've got this continuing stagnation in growth uh, in the us but much worse in, in europe you've also got some really serious structural crises in britain uh, with low investment and low productivity and none of those are addressed by small state uh, low tax, small state, small, right? Yeah, small state, uh, low <laughs> big tax air quotes, solutions. small state. Yeah, this is a party, Conservative Party of Britain, that uh, is completely bankrupt of ideas, and sooner than that they are voted out of office, the better. But of course, the other party isn't being exactly supportive these days. The Labour leader Keir Starmer appears to have instructed the party not to appear on picket lines with the RMT, despite you know being the Labour Party. It's a really good symbol or demonstration of, firstly, what a right-wing uh, politician he is. Uh, the Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, that his instincts are always to turn away from the organised working class when they're fighting for their jobs and their, their standard of living. But it's also a mark of how out of touch he is, because as I was saying to you at the beginning of this interview, the opinion polls and the media coverage of our dispute showed overwhelmingly that we have the backing of the people he needs to get himself elected as Prime Minister. And he's out of step. He's wildly out of step. Um, and he's a, he's, a, he's a guy who's had a charisma bypass and he's really, uh, I think, quite vulnerable now. The Tories get a new leader. They will mm -hmm. unite behind the new leader, however horrendous that person is. The disappointing thing I think the Labour Party has been that the left of the Labour Party has been so disorganised, so ideologically uh -huh. incoherent, so obsessed with identity politics, so unable to identify with the real class struggles going on in this country. It's taken the RMT and the rail workers to really put the working class on the map. Uh, the Labour Party, including the Labour Party left, weren't there in the last three years uh, since Corbyn's uh, defeat yeah. in 2019. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Alex about the hype and reality of hot strike summer to diagnose the anger that people are feeling, not just in Britain, but around the world, and what unions can learn about this moment in order to channel that outrage into outcomes that improve the lives of the working class. Well, I think it's part of a global phenomenon. I'm not being... Uh, yeah. I'm not being rhetorical about that. I see it happening in, in lots of countries. I mean, you know, look what's happening in Sri Lanka this week. Uh, God knows what's happening in El Salvador, where the president uh, bet the country's economy on Bitcoin. You know, the, 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 yeah. these, these neoliberal mantras, which have been fed to the ruling elites in country after country around the world, are coming undone. 
And what we're seeing now is that people are revolting against the uh, inequality uh, that is inherent in that system. So where that will take us, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, it could go in a number of different directions. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we'll win uh, a series of disputes in the summer in Britain because we have a mass, uh, fairly confident trade union movement. Where that develops politically afterwards, I'm not sure. We've already said, you know, the Labour Party isn't going to, uh, under its current leadership, be able to pick up any victory that comes out of the trade union movement. It would have to change its leadership. It would have to change its policies to a great extent. And that's part of what we want to do is to make it change. Uh, but this is bigger than just what's happening in this country. Uh, you can see the crisis uh, happening in Europe at the moment. I mean, Dutch, German farmers, you know, blockading roads. There's going to be a railway strike in France in a few weeks' time. And I think that the pressures of rising inflation, low growth in the world economy, imperialist war, which is forcing up food prices, fuel prices, and energy prices. Um, these are signs that uh, it's not just going to be a long, hot summer. We're going to be going into a period of intense political confrontation. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Alex Gordon, president of the RMT Union. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is Welcome to Hell by Jared Facundo and Brian Osgood in The American Prospect. The article explores the experience of working in an often overlooked part of our healthcare system, veterinary medicine. Yes, if our pets are part of our family, then their medical care is part of our healthcare system too. Facundo and Osgood investigated the biggest employer of veterinary care workers in the U.S., Mars Pet Care. Yep, that's the same Mars that makes the chocolate bars. The company's expansion into the veterinary medical sector is a byproduct of its pet care brand, and it has gobbled up other pet care chains across the country so that it now has a global workforce of some 100,000. An untold number of those workers suffer daily from psychologically abusive and sometimes physically dangerous workplaces, according to interviews with numerous current and former employees. They have complained of extremely long and exhausting shifts, bullying, and a general corporate culture in which frontline veterinary workers are routinely belittled and blamed for failing to meet unsustainable performance standards. And the field generally has an extraordinarily high suicide rate relative to the general population. In the case of Morgan Van Fleet, her experience working for the veterinary conglomerate Blue Pearl in Washington state exacerbated several underlying medical problems. As an emergency room supervisor at a specialist facility in Kirkland, she regularly worked shifts of 14 or 15 hours. Facundo and Osgood write, quote, The stress was psychologically reinforced by comments from management, according to Van Fleet. She was once told by a supervisor, quote, You're never going to make what a nurse makes, unquote. Indeed, average wages for vet assistants and techs are $29,780 and $36,850, respectively even though they could have supervisory duties and high-pressure responsibilities. A study published in 2019 found that median wages of assistants and technicians did not keep up with the cost of living, even in metropolitan areas where pay for veterinary assistants and technicians was highest. 
Though such long shifts could potentially violate wage and hour laws, state veterinary medical boards are more concerned with adequate licensing or investigating cases of fraud and theft than labor standards. Additionally, the medical boards generally do not mandate patient-to-provider ratios at vet facilities, something that could help prevent understaffing, unquote. You can see here that the brutal work schedules mirror many of the problems we see in the human healthcare system, especially for frontline workers like nurses and assistants. But in veterinary care, the regulatory system is apparently less developed and the oversight structures that exist are simply not that interested in the people working in these facilities. Van Fleet said that her condition, which included multiple sclerosis and a seizure disorder that emerged while she was working for Mars, deteriorated over time and her employer used it against her. After suffering a concussion at work due to a seizure, Van Fleet said, quote, she communicated to management that she needed time to recover. But when they stopped responding to Van Fleet's emails and phone calls, she realized she no longer had a job. I was fired for having a seizure disorder, Van Fleet alleged. Van Fleet blames Mars for her physical condition worsening. She said, quote, your health deteriorates because you're so mentally ill, unquote, explaining that she's seen in others the physical manifestations of the psychological stress while working for Mars Incorporated. Chronic fatigue, weight gain, depression, anxiety, self-harm, and substance abuse disorders, unquote. Well, the cycle of overwork, deteriorating health, and self-blame is a common feature across many medical or care professions, ironically. Veterinary medicine comes with some peculiar occupational hazards, like patients constantly biting or scratching you. That could lead to life-threatening injury. Workers, too, are instructed implicitly to prioritize animals' needs over their own. Continuing a pattern we have seen in many service industries, workers are told to give their all because their work is so important. And so much is riding on their job that they just have to put in those extra hours or they'll be abandoning their duties and letting the team down. And while the prospect did not delve into this, I imagine that caring for animals may be even more psychologically complex and burdensome than caring for humans in some respects, given that you have to interpret nonverbal behavioral cues to know what's really wrong with the pet. Van Fleet claimed that Mars would often tell employees that their troubles were due to so-called compassion fatigue. Now, this is a real phenomenon among humanitarian and care workers in which people begin to become emotionally desensitized to the horrors they're exposed to on the job. But according to Facundo and Osgood's reporting, quote, Mars frames compassion fatigue as a personal failing, unquote. Or as Van Fleet explained, quote, I have been gaslit so much, I believe I am the problem, unquote. Workers said chronic understaffing was actually at the root of many of these problems, resulting in, quote, feelings of disposability, neglect, and exploitation, unquote. One vet tech noted that there used to be a standard of no more than six patients for each technician, but that the number had ballooned to as many as 18 patients per technician today. To add insult to injury, Mars has tried to address employee mental health concerns by rolling out numerous fancy-sounding programs centered on self-care for employees, with tips on avoiding burnout, like exercise or spend more time with friends. But these measures appear to be pro forma gestures aimed at limiting liability for workers' mental health crises. What would really help is an overhaul of how their workplaces are run and empowering the staff so that they get the respect they deserve. That could mean forming a union or providing social workers for the workforce or ensuring adequate staffing standards so that workers are not given unsustainable workloads. But such measures might cut into Mars's bottom line. So instead, their business model for delivering care for animals involves dehumanizing their workers. Not quite compassion fatigue, more like compassion abuse. For this week's ARG, I'm thinking once again about nurses. Specifically, I'm thinking about a great piece by Carrie Leiderson at In These Times titled, Nurses in the U.S. Are Suffering Moral Injury. 
Moral injury is a term that I learned about from Roger Karma at Ezra Klein's podcast last year when we were discussing my book and the labors of love. Leiderson explains it thus, quote, In recent years, academics and frontline workers have used the term moral injury and moral distress to describe the debilitating combination of anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, anger, and betrayal that results when workers like nurses are thrust into life-or-death situations without the resources and support structures to carry out the mission they've committed to. The term moral injury was coined by former U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs psychiatrist Jonathan Shea based on his work with Vietnam veterans, as explained in a December 2020 white paper by the National Nurses United Union. Moral injury involves a deleterious long-term emotional, psychological, behavioral, spiritual, and or social effects of perpetrating or failing to prevent acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations in a high-stakes environment, the paper notes. End quote. For nurses dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic in ill-equipped, understaffed hospitals in a patchwork healthcare system, the already existing feeling of being undervalued and unsupported is expanding into a full-on crisis. And moral injury can contribute to the development of PTSD. Moral injury is different from your usual ethical dilemma. It's a situation where you know what to do and what you need, and what you are being pressured to do from above is diametrically opposed to that, or you simply don't have what you need in order to be able to do it. Leiderson writes, quote, In military situations, an individual can experience moral injury when they are forced to harm civilians or take unjustified military actions, and the emotional and mental impacts are worsened in situations like the Vietnam War, where veterans face blame and hostility from the general public, or situations like the Iraq War, where the general public is largely unaware of what the veterans have been through, studies note. Nurses report a dynamic that has some parallels. They don't have the resources to serve their patients well, but hospital administrators blame them for failings or don't acknowledge the extreme conditions they are working under, and where patients often treat them with hostility or even violence. During the pandemic, experiences causing moral injury ranged from having to choose which patients got ventilators to not being able to check in on COVID-19 patients regularly in order to minimize risk of transmission. End quote. Friend of the show and Chicago nurse Elizabeth Lalash is also featured in this story. She explains that the individualization of the problems nurses face leads to more pain, more injury. Quote, We do this with the intention of trying to help and save lives, said Lalash, who worked three stints in COVID-19 wards and contracted the disease herself, missing 18 days of work. If you're not able to have what you need to be able to do that, it's systemic. All these things existed prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, but that really brought it to a head. She said nurses like herself who contracted COVID-19 felt management was minimizing their experiences and their concerns and gaslighting them into thinking they just had to toughen up. There needs to be an acknowledgement that there is a systemic problem with the way the healthcare system is run in this country, Lalash said. This was something that happened called a worldwide pandemic. It's not my fault that it happened. It's capitalism's fault, end quote. And I would just add that when I spoke to Elizabeth for a story of my own, we talked about the way the pushback to normal, the general denial that the pandemic is still happening, can exacerbate the feelings of isolation and trauma that nurses are feeling. So all of this crisis, as Lalash notes, is creating an artificial nursing shortage. Leiderson writes, quote, A recent report by McKinsey and Company estimates the United States could face a nursing shortage of 200,000 to 450,000 available nurses, 10% to 20% fewer than needed by 2025. A November 2021 industry study found that 90% of nurses surveyed are considering leaving the profession, citing burnout, staff shortages, and unmanageable workloads as key reasons, end quote. And Lalash points out, there's not a shortage of nurses. There's a shortage of nurses who want to work under these conditions. 
nurses quitting to become travel nurses is helping to undermine the very thing, though, that can solve this problem, strong unions. When the crisis is individualized, the solution becomes to quit. Whereas when the problem is collective, which it obviously is, the answer is better, safer hospital conditions. And of course, as National Nurses United has long pointed out, a truly universal healthcare system, properly staffed and funded to provide frontline care in safe conditions. Nurses who have been through the meat grinder of COVID are now having their benefits taken away, feeling like no one cares if we live or die. Registered nurse and Michigan Nurses Association former interim president Ann Jackson told Leiderson, We're not able to give the care we used to give, and we're ashamed, and yet hospitals are making record profits. Nurses put themselves on the line for all of our health. It is time to stop making them do it in the most horrific conditions possible, both physically and emotionally. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on unionized nights, healthcare workers, Uber drivers, and all the strikes we can keep up with. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting and Facebooking and all those terrible social media apping about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We would especially appreciate it, and it's free if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new listeners and move up the charts. So thank you for your positive ratings. Special thanks once again to all of you who are supporting us financially over the past nine years over the Descent website or now on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do this kind of labor journalism. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a train driver or a ticket taker, a yoga instructor or a veterinary assistant, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 